The much anticipated night had finally arrived. As you hustle to the center of the village in the inky black night, you can smell the fragrant burning of a wood fire. The flames of the large communal fire leapt upward intensely as faint crackling of hot coals and timber engage your senses. The distinctive sensation of warmth from the fire swirled together with the cool night air caressed your skin and heightened the expectation of the night's events. The elder would be recounting the creation story tonight and every last member of your village was in attendance. The light from the fire danced off the humble homes and jungle background. Your face is immediately warmed by the intense flames and all around you there is singing, chanting, and dancing. A warrior you admire roughly hands you a cup of hot chocolate and gives you a look that is brotherly yet intimidating. You take a sip. It's not sweet, but it's not bitter. It's rich, but also spicy. It's... Suddenly, and in eerie unison, everyone stops, and the only sounds are of the crackling fire and the dancers trying to quietly catch their breath. You know the stories by heart. You have heard them many times since you were a child. You look around at everyone, frozen in the flamelight, captivated by the Elder, soon to be beholden to his every word. The Elder has emerged from his home. His sinewy body is persistent in its ability to preserve his strength throughout the years. His eyes are intense and weathered from all he has seen, but he projects a gentle power and wisdom that is tangible, real, and commanding. Still, not a word has been spoken. Then all at once, with eyes wide open and reflecting the intensity of the flames, he begins. This is an account of the beginning, when all was stillness, silence, and water. There was no land. There was no light, there was no plants, there were no people, and there were no animals. The deities, covered in green and blue feathers, lay in the primordial waters and created the earth. Next, the plants and animals were created, but the animals did not speak and could not worship. So the deities decided to create humans from mud. But these first humans, they had no souls, and they were not good keepers of the days. So they destroyed them in a great flood, dissolving away their little mud-based bodies. The deities tried another time, and created humans from wood. But the wooden people had no blood within them for sacrifice. They would not worship, and they were cruel to everything they encountered, even their animals. The gods were greatly displeased, but the wood people had multiplied so readily that it would be difficult to destroy them all. So the deities allowed the animals to eat the wooden people and get their revenge for the cruelties imparted upon them. You think to yourself, who doesn't love a little poetic justice? The elder continues. The few wood people that survived would be transformed into the monkeys that would live in the trees and serve as a reminder to the new people that were soon to be created of the fate that awaited them if they did not perform to the gods' liking. Once the sun and the moon were created and affixed in the sky, illuminating the earth, the gods decided to make one final attempt to create humans. This time, they mixed yellow and white corn with water to make human flesh.
the God shaped and formed the people, and this time they are everything the gods had hoped for, and more. Maybe a little too good. Not only do these people pray to their makers and keep the holy days, but they have perfect vision, and therefore perfect knowledge. The gods decided that these humans were a little too perfect, so they put a fog on the people's eyes so they could not see that they were godlike and would not become greater than their creators. As the elder continues the story, a wave of fearful reverence washes over you. This is how you came to be. This is how everything came to be. And though you are warmed by the fire, you shiver at the thought of the God's powers. You think to yourself, how could I be worthy of the gifts the gods have given me? And how do I live up to all that I am expected to be? Redirecting your attention to the elder, you silence your thoughts and allow yourself to be carried away by his voice, drawn ever deeper into the mystery of creation that would one day be called the Popol Vuh. The Mayan creation story and collection of religious texts known today as the Popol Vuh were originally oral traditions and teachings that were intertwined with the calendrics of the Mayan people. The Maya had no corresponding word for myth, thereby giving their understanding of these stories a sense of euhemerism. Euhemerism is the interpretation of mythology as actual history, coupled with the belief that some of the gods arose from dead heroes. The name Pol Pol Vu means council book or book of the people. It was written in the 16th century when everything was going to Shibalba in a handbasket at the hands of the Spanish. I love that the gods are seen as trial and error beings and have to start over a couple of times to get it right instead of being the all-knowing, all-powerful deity that we are all too familiar with from other traditions. I also find it fascinating that there are similarities with Mesopotamian creation stories in terms of the initial void, creation through mere words, the great flood story, the affixing of sun and moon in the sky, and so on. The Maya at the time believed that they were living in the time of the fourth creation. So let's take a look at some of the stories and traditions that make up the Mayan council book. The creation story. In the introduction, we touched on the creation story, and unlike the biblical account that many are familiar with, this creation took a few tries to get right. And oddly, there wasn't a sun or a moon until the end of the third creation. So it must have been an interesting time indeed. In terms of setup, here's what you need to know. With the first creation, we get animals. With the second, we get the unfortunate mud people. With the third, we have the wooden people. And the fourth creation is the time period of the Maya. There are two sets of twins that are featured in the creation stories. One set lived in the second creation, and the other set lived in the third creation. The first set are named Hun Hunapu and Vakub Hunapu. The second set is Hunapu and Shabalanke. The first set are the maze twins, and the second set are the hero twins. I hope you're writing this all down. These stories rely heavily on the lords of the underworld, and they have great names like One Death, Flying Scab, Pus Demon, Skull Staff, Stabbing Demon, and so on. Incidentally, Stabbing Demon is credited with hiding in the unswept areas of Mayan homes in hopes of stabbing the occupants to death. 
Note to self, pick up a Roomba the next time you're out, just in case. You have probably deduced from my earlier reference that the name of their underworld, it's called Shibalba, and it means place of terror. So, are you ready? Let's look at the time of the second and third creation that will lead us to humanity. In the second creation, the first set of twins were ball players, and they really irked the underworld gods with all of the noise from their gameplay. You see, the ground for our world acts as the ceiling for the underworld, and who hasn't experienced the annoying upstairs neighbor at least once in their life? So the gods decide to lure the twins to the underworld by challenging them to a ball game, and the twins accept and head to the underworld. There's a famous sports broadcaster in Chicago named Steve Stone, and every time there was a botch play, he would use a very instructive tone to admonish the youth from making the same mistake by saying, for all you little leaguers out there, you should never fill in the blank. Well, for all you little leaguers out there, if you are ever invited to the underworld to play a game of ball against the gods of death, politely decline the offer and just go about your business. Since there was no Steve Stone at the time, the twins accepted the invite. They get tricked into performing a magical challenge that they fail miserably at, and they are killed by the gods. If you are curious, the task was to keep some torches and cigars lit throughout the night without allowing the flames to consume either of these items. Remember that their names are Hoon and Vakub. So Vakub, he's dead dead. He's never coming back. But Hoon, he has his head chopped off and stuck upon a barren tree like a head on a pike type deal. And it seems the story is over with the gods of Shibaba rejoicing in their victory. Or is it? In a twist of plot, the life force of these trees keeps Hoon's head alive, and Hoon's magical properties allow the tree to bear abundant fruit that would later be called kalabash. Kalabash is a type of domesticated squash that has an hourglass shape, and if you squint hard enough, it supposedly looks like a desiccated head. Hoon can still see and talk thanks to the tree, and once the gods of Shibalba see what's going on, they make the whole area off-limits to all of the inhabitants of the underworld. However, one of the gods, his name is Bloodchief, has a daughter who hears of this magical tree and is enamored with the idea of seeing it for herself, maybe even tasting the fruit if possible. The girl's name is Bloodmoon, but her Mayan name is spelled X-Q-U-I-C. Now the X at the beginning or end of any Mayan word is always pronounced with a sh type sound, so it looks to me like her name should be pronounced Shqueek. That's pretty adorable for being a daughter of the underworld. With the temptation of the forbidden being more than she can bear, Squeak sneaks her way over to the tree and encounters Hoon's head on the tree. She's absolutely fascinated by it and strikes up a conversation with him. Hoon tries to persuade Bloodmoon to leave the area, and she does not want to taste the fruit of this tree. Squeak, however, insists that she wants the fruit and stretches out her hand. At this moment, Hoon spits into her hand, and this act impregnates her with the new set of hero twins. Well, as you can imagine, this is far more than Blood Moon had bargained for, and she tried desperately to hide her condition. Eventually, she began to show, and her father Bloodchief, as well as the other lords of Shibalba, demanded to know who the father is. They shamed her for her alleged promiscuity, and her father commands the owls of the underworld to carry her away and sacrifice her. He demands that they bring him 
her heart wrapped in a gourd immediately, and the owls fly away with her. Why did the Madonna song, Papa Don't Preach, just pop into my head? Now the owls, they're pretty chill about this whole situation, and they don't want to kill Blood Moon because she's their friend. So once they get her out of the god's sight, they set her down and proceed to make a heart look-alike from the balled-up sap of a tree called Copal that was used in Mesoamerica as incense due to its rich fragrance. They sealed it in a gourd and brought it back to the lords of death, darkness, and sickness. In the ritual manner, these gods built a fire and burned the gourd, thinking Blood Moon's heart was inside. The strong fragrances from the Copal blinded the gods, and Blood Moon escaped to the human world with the twins safely protected inside of her. She's going to need some help in this new world, so Blood Moon heads off to find the grandmother of her unborn babies. But Grandma turns out to be one tough cookie. Now let's put ourselves in Grandma's shoes. She's the mother creator and is raising two grandsons already. They are called One Howler and One Monkey. She knows her sons were killed in Shibalba some time ago, and now here comes this very pregnant, likely unwashed and disheveled girl from the underworld, claiming to be carrying her grandchildren inside of her. This leads to one of the best lines in the Pulpul Vu. Upon hearing the girl's story, the grandmother quips, You do not carry my grandchildren. You only have your own fornications in your belly. Now get out! Blood Moon, however, persists, so the grandmother begrudgingly gives her a task to prove herself. Blood Moon must haul her pregnant self out to the cornfield and fill up multiple baskets of corn from the one scraggly corn stalk that grows there. If she can fill all of the baskets, the grandmother will believe her and will help her. Blood Moon goes to the field and recites some incantations for help in this task, and, with a little magic of their own, the unborn twins use their powers from inside the womb to help their mother fill all of the baskets full. This satisfies the grandmother, and Blood Moon now has a place to stay. At the dawn of the first day of the third creation, Hunapu and Shabalanke are born, but now the grandmother has turned against them, and their brothers, one monkey and one howler, try to kill them but fail. Hunapu and Shabalanke, they are referred to as the hero twins. They're forced to live in the mountains, and they have to hunt food for their family. Dutifully, they perform this task every day, using their blowguns to shoot birds out of the trees. The twins, however, are never fed. The grandmother and the brothers would just take and eat the food, so the twins lived in constant hunger. Fortunately, the hero twins are part magical, so they survive and grow using their powers, but they are not shown kindness or love from their family. They have We have already seen what results when people are cruel in the Mayan tradition? Think back to the wooden people. The hero twins finally say enough is enough, and one day they just come home with nothing. No birds means no dinner, and their family confront them and chide them for it. The twins explain that the birds are now too high in the tree and they need their brothers to come help. The brothers agree to go with them tomorrow at dawn, and the twins, show, uh, the twins share a knowing smile with each other. 
The next day they go to the tree, and as the twins had said, the birds were pretty high up there. So the brothers climb the tree, and the twins use their magic to make the tree suddenly grow higher and higher to the point of terrifying their brothers. One howler and one monkey cry out to the twins to save them, and the twins shout back, Just loosen your loincloth and use the long end as a tail so you don't fall. When the brothers did this, the twins used their magic again to turn one howler and one monkey into actual monkeys that must now live in the trees as punishment for their cruelty and arrogance. As time went by, the twins began working the grandmother's field and had a chance encounter with a rat who told them they're not meant to be farmers. They're supposed to be ball players, like their fathers were before them. The rat told the twins the story of their fathers and how they came to be. The rat also explained that the grandmother had sought to keep this information from them and to hide the sacred ball and sacred ball player gear from them. But since the rat had every had every access to the house and every nook and cranny, he had been able to see it and was willing to help them acquire it. The boys were so happy to not be farmers anymore and came up with a plan to get the grandmother out of the house so they could play ball. The plan worked and the twins began to play, but the sounds of the game reached the underworld as they had back in the second creation and the gods were enraged. They mock us, they howled. Let's kill them, they screamed. And so Blood Chief sent the owls to summon the twins to the underworld in seven days' time. There the gods would trick the twins and kill them as they had done to their fathers long ago. Their grandmother was heartbroken, and to soothe her, the twins each planted a cornstalk in her home. As long as they were alive, the corn would be alive, but if they died, the cornstalk would die. I personally don't see how that's very comforting, but no one asked me now, did they? On the way to the underworld, they meet up with a bird creature named Seven Macaw. Seven Macaw was a prideful and arrogant narcissist, which I realize are all synonyms. He was richly bejeweled in his eyes and body, and he claimed that he was the sun and the moon. Remember, there's no sun and moon just yet. It won't come until the end of the third creation, which we are currently working through. He wanted desperately to be worshipped, and the twins just weren't having any of it. They produce their blowguns and shoot Seven Macaw out of his tree, where he crashes to the ground and breaks his jaw. In his fury, Seven Macaw lashes out at Hunapu and rips his arm off, and then retreats to his home with Hunapu's arm to nurse his wounds. The twins immediately seek the help of the elders of the area, and they come up with a plan to trick Seven Macaw and end his foolishness forever. The elders pose as healers, and they go to Seven Macaw's home, where they offer to fix his jaw and teeth. Seven Macaw is delighted and quickly accepts the offer, but instead of restoring him back to his former glory, the elders proceed to remove all of his teeth, his eyes, and his brilliant jewelry from his body, replacing everything with plain white corn kernels. When Seven Macaw realized what had happened, his shame and despair were so great that he died from the emptiness that he felt. Hunapu, on the other hand, just simply retrieved his arm and magically restored it to his body, and the twins then descend to the underworld, as by now, seven days had passed since the initial summoning. The twins landed at the convergence of Puss River and Blood River in the underworld, and let me just tell you something, if it were me, I would have quit right then and there. 
Blood Chief, I'm really sorry for the misunderstanding. You can have the ball and the gear. I'll just go back to where I came from, and we could just forget this whole thing ever happened, okay? But the Hero Twins have more character than I do, and they press on, using their blowguns to travel across the deadly rivers and get to dry land. Once they get to dry land, they create the first mosquitoes and send them to bite and harass the gods of the underworld. You see, their fathers had been tricked by the gods before they were killed, and the Hero Twins decided they needed to know the names of the underworld gods to strip them of their powers. Knowing the name of something kills its magic. You can find that same idea in ancient Egypt, Greece, and other early religions uh, as well, where one cannot pronounce God's true name because pronouncing it shows ownership or control of the deity. Anyhow, the mosquitoes find their targets and harass them, and as each god utters the other's name to ask if they are okay, these amazing mosquitoes uh, somehow remember the names and uh, fly back to the twins to report what they know. When the heroes finally meet up with the Dark Lords, they address them by their names, and now everyone is on the same level, so the game, when it's played, will be fair. The gods subject the twins to many trials, like the House of Darkness, where their fathers failed to keep the torches and cigars lit without consuming them. To achieve this, the twins use bright quetzal feathers uh, on the torches and fireflies in the cigars to give them the appearance of being lit when they were checked on throughout the night by the watchmen. When the morning came, the twins handed over the torches and cigars as perfectly as they had received them, uh, to the dismay of Blood Chief. The lords of Shabala then demanded just to just play the game and confident that they would win with so many versus just the two boys. But on the first play, the boys shot the ball through the ring, ending the game and further frustrating the gods. The twins were then subjected to the House of Knives, which has sentient, sharp instruments that try to kill the boys. The boys spoke to the knives and said they would forever be masters over all flesh, including the animals, if they would just leave the boys alone. The knives just loved that idea. They became still, and the trial was finished. The next trial was the House of Cold, but the twins set fires throughout the house and defeated the cold. The next was the House of Jaguars, where the boys were in serious danger of being eaten alive. The heroes then cast a spell and conjured mountains of bones for the jaguars to eat if the animals would just leave them alone. The sounds of the jaguars crunching bones delighted the lords of the underworld as they thought the jaguars were feasting on the boys. But in the morning, the twins stepped out of the house of jaguars with nary a scratch. Lastly, it was the house of bats, where the angry bats have razors for claws and teeth. And this time, the boys were not so lucky. After hiding in their blowguns most of the night, Hunapu looked out to see uh, if it was dawn yet, and his head was promptly removed by one of the bats. The lords of Shibalba were ecstatic and demanded to play another ball game, this time using Hunapu's head as a ball. His brother, Shabalanke, remembers uh, the calabash trick from his father's story and places a pumpkin on Hunapu's head as substitute. The boys begin the game with, uh, with the gods, and in some confusion on the field, they're able to wrest away Hunapu's real head from the other players and reattach it. The boys proceed to win the game, but realize that what they needed to accomplish was not to simply outwit and outplay the gods of Shibalba, but then to be sacrificed so they would come back more powerful than they were before. Think Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader. 
So they allowed the lords of uh, the underworld to sacrifice them in fire and grind their bones into a fine powder that was then cast into a river. The twins returned five days later, disguised as dancers and magicians, whose signature move was they could kill one another and come back to life on their own. This intrigued the lords of Shibalba, and they requested the two visit them and perform their tricks. When the lords saw the amazing abilities of these two, who could die and resurrect all on their own, they were overcome with awe and wanted the men to kill them and bring them back as well. Well, the disguised twins were only too happy to oblige the lords, but they then refused to resurrect them. The boys reveal who they are and resurrect their father instead, who becomes the maze god. Then, with the world safe for humans to inhabit because the underworld had been defeated, Hunapu took to the sky and became the true sun, while Shabalanke took to the sky and became the true moon, unlike the self-proclaimed sun and moon seven macaw. Together they rule the heavens and provide light for all of mankind. This ends the third creation, and soon the fourth creation will yield the people the gods had always wanted, thanks to the efforts of the hero twins. There are plenty more stories, and you can research them for yourself should you so desire. Reading through some of these are a great insight into the mindset of the Maya, and is worthy of your time. Speaking of time, let's dig into the Maya calendar next. The Maya calendar. Altogether, there are five positions for the Mayan long count, and they are as follows. Baktun, which comes out to 144,000 days, the equivalent of 394.5 solar years. Katun, just 7,200 days, and it comes out to be almost 19.75 solar years. Tun, which is 360 days, and it's not quite a solar year. Winal is 20 days and completes a sacred cycle as tracked by the movement of the planet Venus, and Keen, which just equals one day. Now, the shorthand expression of these years comes out like an IP address, with the five sections being separated by periods. The calendar start date is September 6, 3114 BC, or 0bactun.0katun.0tun.0winal.0keen. Today's date is February 10th. 2021, and it's represented as 13 baktun dot zero katun dot eight tun dot four winal dot thirteen keen. Before we go any further, I would like to suggest that right now is a splendid time to slide over to the companion website www.mesoplus.net. That's www.mesoplus.net for help visualizing the uh, calendar system. Now, the long count cycle reset on December 21st, 2012, back when we were warned that the world would end because the Mayan calendar terminated on that date. As time is seen as cyclical, but measured sequentially by the Maya, when it reset, the calendar advanced from the 12th Baktun to the 13th Baktun. Bear in mind, the long count is the third of three calendars the Maya used in simultaneity. The other two are the sacred calendar, which is 260 days, and the solar calendar, 365 days. These two calendars match up only once every 52 years in what would result in the new fire ceremony. This is the ceremony I described in the introduction of my last episode on the Mayan classic period. The Maya, most notably, held theirs at Chichen Itza, where a convergence of the Pleiades and a solar zenith 
aligns with the Pyramid of Kukulkan every 52 years, though it was likely celebrated in other cities and maybe villages as well. There are exactly 73 Zulkin and 52 Hob in this cycle. Well, what the heck does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Zulkin is the completion of the sacred calendar of 260 days and marks the passage of Venus. Hob is the completion of the solar calendar of 360 days, which is 18 months at 20 days each. Being of sound mind, I'm certain that you recognize that 360 days just don't cut it when it comes to a solar year, now does it? Well, don't worry. The Maya are way ahead of you. The Wayab is what the Maya called the extra five days needed to make a true solar year. These were just tacked on to the end of the Hob as extra days, and they were deemed as very unlucky. People born on these days were said to be prone to alcoholism, thievery, depravity, insanity, and even demonic possession. These dreaded days did not have names uh, as all of the other days did, presumably because of this trait. The standard Mayan day names were numbered 0 through 19 and are recited thusly. Emish, which means water, alcohol, or sea dragon. Ik, which is air or life. Akbal, which is night. Khan, is corn. Uh, Chikan, which is serpent. Chimi, which is death. Manik, which is deer. Lamat is rabbit. Muluk is rain. Ok is dog. Chukin is monkey. Eb is broom. Bane is reed. Ish is tiger or magician. Men is bird or eagle or wise one. Uh, Sib, which is owl or vulture. Kaban, which is force or earth. Esnob, which means knife. Kaok, which is storm. And Ahau, which is lord. So after the 20th name, Ahau, we start over again with Imish. With the day names out of the way, the Mayan month names and their associated activities are next. So the first month is Pulp, and it means like mat, like a, like a reed mat. It's the symbol of community, uh, celebration, drinking, and gift giving uh, occurred on the first day. There's uh, Uo, which means frog. Shamans and priests made offerings and predictions for the year. Zip, which is a stag. It honors the god of hunting, Ekzip, and uh, hunters and fishers blessed their tools and performed blood sacrifices during this time. Zotz, which means bat. Beekeepers must fast during this time, and it was associated with the beginning of the dark months. Think October-ish, as the new year was celebrated in late July. Tizek, which means skull. Uh, the beekeeper festival uh, was celebrated where honey was given to the community and sweet offerings were made to chalk, the water god. Shul, which means termination. This was all about the feathered serpent with many offerings and the burning of incense. Processions to temples were made and comedians visited villages to collect offerings to bring back to the temples. Kukulkan would descend from the heavens and receive the offerings at the end of the month. Yashkin means first son. Uh, instruments and work utensils were blessed and children were struck lightly nine times upon the knuckles to ensure that they would become great craftsmen like their parents. Mole, which means uh, water or jade. Uh, a month of wood carvings to honor the gods done in ceremonious fashion and accompanied by bloodletting. 
Once the craftsman started the image, he must continue with little to no rest until it was finished. Food and drink were brought to him by his family. Chain means uh, a well. So with wooden effigies finished, they were offered to the gods and then a period of fasting and I'm sorry, a period of feasting and drinking ensued. Yash, which means green sun or renewal. Temples were renovated and repaired during this time. Prayers to chalk were offered to gain favor on the maize fields and Venus was revered, revered during this time as well. Sock means white. Remember, Sock Bay was a white road. Uh, Sock, it means white. This was the second of two hunter festivals. This one revolved around asking forgiveness for the animals slain during the year. K, which means red or deer. This is a free month. Nothing going on except maybe a ceremony honoring deer and their importance to the Maya. Mock, it means enclosure. Ceremonies performed uh, by the elders to honor chalk and it's a it's Amna. Hearts of animals were burned atop the temple and then doused with water. Itzamna was a principal deity to the Maya and is credited with teaching them about medicine, calendrics, and science. Uh, Shankin, which is yellow sun, another free month with no ceremonies. Uh, dogs were honored in some way during this month, but we're not really sure how. Muwan, it means owl. Uh, thanks to the gods for providing a great harvest of cacao. Dogs and blue iguanas were sacrificed in the cacao groves. Posh, it means drum or planting. Completely filled, this month was completely filled with ceremonies honoring warriors, culminating in the community parading the war chief to the temple for feasting, drinking, and dancing. And more dogs were sacrificed to ensure future victories in battle. Kayab, which means turtle. There's no festivals, but the month was dedicated to the moon goddess and those with child and midwives. Kumku uh, means ripe maize. This was not a time for messing around. They needed to get out there and harvest that corn. There were really no festivals or ceremonies. It was get out there and get that food out of the ground. And then there's Wayab, means mis misfortune. These are the five unlucky days where no one left their homes, bathed, or made any plans for fear that evil would consume them. Now, I know that reciting names and translations isn't all that compelling to listen to, but hang in there. We're almost done. Now, for reference, the following examples are only dealing with the first month of the first Zulkin, and remember, it takes 73 Zulkins to get us to the new fire ceremony. Now, the first day of the first Zulkin is expressed one emish, zero pop, or first day of the first month. The next day will be two eek, one pop. Each day will numerically advance, and the corresponding month advances with it. But that was a little too straightforward for the Maya, so they added a wrinkle. After every 13 days, we'll just start with one again. So there's no such thing as 14 ish, or any day named greater than 13. It just cycles back to one ish, two men, three seeb, etc. The month name, however, continues onward until it hits 19. Then it cycles back to 1. So 19 pop yields to 0 uyo. This maintains the integrity of the calendar holding unique day and month names for the entire 52-year cycle. If it's still a little fuzzy to you, you're not alone. It took me a good two weeks of research and talking it out loud just to get these basic concepts down 
to the point where I could recite them semi-intelligently. It really demonstrated to me the sophistication of the Mayan system of calendrics and how lost I would be after the first month trying to keep track of how the day names change. And we're not even getting into the full expression of the date. The new fire ceremony would be held on day 260 of the 73rd Zulkin, day 365 of the 52nd Hob, 13 Ahau for Wyeb. I would probably just have to ask a neighbor what day it was and what I should be doing that day if I were to time travel to this period. So why is it so complicated? These people were mostly just humble farmers who had no real need for elaborate names or cycles. Well, indeed, only the trained priests could interpret the calendar, and as we have seen in Teotihuacan at the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, those priests would mark the days for the common people and just tell them if anything important was about to happen. This is where we get to the beating heart of the calendar. The most, the most important role of this calendar was not to mark Moon Owl's birthday, but to coordinate the current Mayan ruler's actions with historical-slash-mythological events and the people with the proper religious acts at the proper time so the whole world did not come to an end. That's not me being funny. That's the belief system. Every 52 years was seen as a real gamble as to whether the world would be allowed to continue based on the acts of the Mayan people throughout that cycle. This was serious business and was as real to them as real gets. The rulers would reenact the deeds of the gods on the corresponding days, wars would be waged or ended based on star alignment, and the time to plant and reap the harvest was also divined by the calendar. Moreover, the calendar was used to predict the future and determine the fate of those born on certain days. A newborn would be assigned a particular deity for life based on their birth date, and hopefully they weren't born in the Wyab. This god assignment dominated the actions of the person for their entire life and affected their standing in the community forever. The Polpovu and the Mayan calendar tie together nicely as one sets the expectations for mankind and the other provides an accurate means to meet those expectations throughout the lifetime of each person in the Mayan world. I have some reservations about a few of the details in the stories as they seem to line up a little too easily with stories from the Bible. I feel that the original stories may have been altered a touch when they were being transcribed for the Spanish in order to make them more similar to the Christianity that was being forced upon the Mayan people at the time, presumably in hopes that at least the core of the stories would survive the religious fanaticism. I don't have proof of any of that, but I do know that anyone under duress typically will do whatever they think is necessary to ensure their survival, and in the 16th century when this was written, the Maya were under some pretty heavy duress. The story of creation, flood story, Squeak in the Calabash Garden wanting the forbidden fruit, Squeak and her unborn twins filling baskets of corn magically from one meager stalk, I'm thinking fishes and loaves here. There's even a Tower of Babel equivalent, where the singular language of the original people was transformed into multiple languages once they were assigned their gods. All of these smack of Mesopotamian and later Jewish stories, and without resorting to a belief in oceanic connection between the two peoples, I just don't see how it could be so similar, if not influenced by the Christianity of the Spanish. But that's just the skeptic in me, and that is actually what drives me to keep learning about cultures and belief systems. It's fascinating how we're all connected to the same core ideas and beliefs when they are developed on our own, but once there, we seem to really go out of our way to artificially divide ourselves from one another. We would do well to consider a passage from the fourth part of the Pol Pol Vu regarding the differences in people, which states, 
There were now countless peoples in the world, but there was still just one dawn for all tribes. As always, thank you so much for listening. The followers of this program have grown exponentially in the last few weeks, and I'm truly blown away by it. Be sure to join me the next time on Mesoamericana Plus as we finish with the Mayan post-classic world. Now bear in mind that the Aztec and Maya were conquered at roughly the same time period, so with the Toltec being the next culture I present after the Mayan post-classic world, we will be sliding back to roughly the 11th century and progress from there through the Aztec and end up in the same unfortunate place of European invasion. Please drop by the website at www.mesoplus.net and if possible, drop some quetzal feathers and cacao beans in the donation box uh, just to help me continue to provide this program. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Mesoamericana Plus.